we're going to do a little something different in the feed today. We're sharing another episode of a podcast called Real Good by U.S. Bank. Every season, Real Good seeks to tell stories of people putting in the work. It's a podcast that shows us that while the world is an imperfect place, there are people out there trying to make it better. They've put out four really great seasons and they've just started their fifth. You're about to hear a clip from the fifth season. If you like what you heard, go listen and subscribe to Real Good wherever you get your podcasts. This is Real Good by U.S. Bank, a podcast about helpers. I'm Faith Saley. Eric Toda is a master marketer, brand visionary, and strong supporter of the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. Professionally, Eric is the global head of social marketing and executive director of Meta Prosper, both at Facebook's parent company, Meta. Yet in the years following a slate of AAPI-directed violent crimes, Eric's grown a reputation as a vocal advocate for his community, both in business and broader society. Eric doesn't shy away from tough issues or hard talk. He shared stories of violence directed at his grandfather, discrimination he grew up with in Northern California, and the moment that propelled him into public advocacy. He also spoke with us about the world he wants to leave for his children. But before we tackle the future, we're going to take a trip to the past. We begin the conversation with a topic that can be daunting for anyone, parental expectations. All right, Eric, I, I just want to start out by getting the hard stuff out of the way. We're going we're gonna to go a little dark, and I would like you to explain how you disappointed your mother because I've heard you say that she wanted you to be an optometrist. Go. Man, she really did. She really did. Um, this will actually be the first time I ever speak about this. Um, and, and this piece of information is the first time it'll ever be truly, truly public. Um, I'm actually blind in the left eye. Um, really? So, yeah. So Faith, you know, you did your research on me. This is one thing you didn't know. I'm blind, uh, legally blind in the left eye. Uh, when I was five years old, um, I was a bit rambunctious of a child and I wasn't listening to my mother when she was telling me to, to not go into, uh, you know, some bushes, uh, mm. in the middle of January, uh, where there was mm. just literally just sticks. It was like, like, like little spears everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and unfortunately, unfortunately, um, one of those little spears hit me in the eye and, oh uh, God. and I lost my vision. And so at a very early age, um, I had to deal with, um, a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of, you know, an adjustment only having one eye. And I saw a ton of optometrists during the time, a ton of ophthalmologists during that time. And my uncle was actually one of our optometrists and my, and my mother f- saw that profession as so honorable because of how they were helping me and how they were, you know, supporting me. And so, you know, when, um, when my cousin started to, you know, go down the path, uh, of being an optometrist, she really wanted me to be an optometrist as well. Um, she really wanted me to, she said that I could help relate, you know, to, to, to kids like me. Um, she hmm. thought that I could, you know, show empathy to, you know, to kids that didn't listen to their mothers. Um, all that stuff. And so, yes, um, the, you know, I've, you know, when I didn't become an optometrist, uh, my mother was certainly disappointed. Um, I haven't asked her how she feels now. Um, 
something tells me that she, I may, maybe she would still want me to be an optometrist. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> there's still time. There's yeah, still time. I, I, hey, there's still, there's always time, <laughs> baby. There's always time. Um, as long as you're a global optometrist. Yeah. You know what? Like, it doesn't matter if I'm on TV, anything like that. She wants, she really wanted me to be an optometrist. Yeah. So, so yes, um, I, she was certainly disappointed when I chose uh, another path for sure. So I didn't. Re- so thank you for sharing that because yeah. I, I didn't realize that's where it was going to go because I have heard you kind of casually mention your mom wanted you to be an optometrist in the context of talking about some stereotypical expectations of Asian American parents, which is and, and I'm, I'm quoting you, uh, which is a lot of a lot of parents want their kids to be doctors and lawyers. Right. I did not see it veering in that rather heartwarming Oh, direction. I wanted to give you something that, you know, you didn't have yet. I mean, yeah, here's, thank the thing. You. Right. here's Keep the them thing. Coming. Here's the thing. There's still certainly that pressure, right? I think um, my mother being an immigrant from the Philippines, you know, the the level of success to her is um, uh, postgraduate degrees. Um, doesn't matter what they are, just postgraduate degrees. Um, so when I, when I decided not to be an optometrist, she's like, great, then you'll be an attorney. And, and I took the LSAT, you know, I got in law school, all, all that good stuff. Right. And so, you know, and obviously I, I didn't go, but you know, even after that, she's like, well, you're going to get your MBA. Right. And I was like, <laughs> what is it? What is with this? So, so again, there's certainly still that aspect of it for sure. There's always been that pressure. There's always been, you know, that undercurrent of, the the immigrant mindset expectation of what success looks like to mm-hmm. what the reality looks like of what success is actually redefined in America now. And so, um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're not wrong. I just, uh, yeah, wanted to give you something a little different. I love that um, your success in, in a field that is decidedly not uh, medical or law is, is a challenge to stereotypes, but also you have been really transparent about the fact that, again, quoting you, you barely graduated high school. I mean, that's not untrue. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think high school was really difficult for me um, for a number of different reasons. And the easiest thing for me to say was, ah, school's not for me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've done a lot of work on myself, um, with my therapist and, you know, taking care of my mental health and really understanding why I do things and understand why I think things. And when I think back during my high school time, it wasn't that just high school or it wasn't that school just wasn't my thing. It was because school was very difficult for me because I grew up in a town, um, that was predominantly white that didn't have a lot of people that looked like me. And immediately you feel pretty isolated. You feel different. So that's one thing that you're thinking about alongside school. The second thing is, it's that when when you have that and you also have these expectations of, okay, well, if he is one of the only Asian people in the school, he must be amazing at math. That's another mm-hmm. thing you have to think about alongside the other thing and alongside the, and alongside just the basics of school. And then- And alongside the fact that you were blind in one eye. Like, I mean, there's certainly that too. That. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly that too. Um, but you know, and then, and then on top of all of that, you do feel and sense and witness and experience discrimination. Um, and that happened pretty frequently to me. And I, uh, for a can long you, time, 
Can yeah. you can you give us? Uh, I'm sure there are countless examples, but what kind of stuff were you dealing with growing up in Moraga, California? Yeah, uh, for those of you who don't know, Moraga is a suburbs of the Bay Area. It's uh, it's an affluent, uh, predominantly um, Caucasian town, and you know, being one of the only Asian families there, you know, and I, I grew up there from when I was five in, until I graduated high school. Um, I actually live about two minutes from Moraga now. Um, it's, and we could go into that. There's a whole, there's a whole reason for that. Um, but the things that you experience are significant otherness where you open up your history books and you see parts of American history in your history books as you're a child. And you see things that have defined the United States and the people who that have defined the United States, good or bad. And when you don't see yourself in those history books, you, they immediately say, well, who the hell are you? And do you yeah. even belong here? When did you come to the United States, Eric? And for a little bit of history, my family came to the United States pre-gold rush. So I'm fifth generation, fourth generation Japanese American uh, from Central California. And, you know, I don't speak another language. Um, my grandparents were born here. My great grandparents were born here in Monterey. And when I get I get asked. You know, where are you from? Like, I'm from Monterey. <laughs> you know, and, they're like, and they're like, they're like, well, that's not true. You're from another foreign place. You're from a foreign place. And you feel that, that what you feel those questions in your heart. You feel the weight of those questions. You feel ashamed to be different. You wish that people didn't, they, you wish that people looked at like, like at you, but they saw themselves. So they wouldn't have to ask questions. Um, you wish that you didn't bring the foods that you did to school because I love mm. Filipino food and my mom made a ton of Filipino food and I couldn't bring it to school because it's very aromatic. Um, and because of that, the weight that you pull with you through your education and through um, and, and through school is something it's it's additional to the already unique pressures of being a teenager um, in high school trying to figure things out. And, you know, we, there are many times in which my family, when I was growing up, left the restaurant early because someone on another side of the restaurant didn't like how we look like, you know, before the food even came. Um, there are many times where, you know, in high school, I asked um, a, a girl to homecoming and she, you know, point blank tells me, um, I don't like Asian guys. Why would you even ask me? And, and that's totally okay in her mind. Right. And so I think, I do think you, you harbor all of these things. And then again, like alongside the pressures of high school, the pressures of, and this is, you know, I went to a very great high school that is top, I think top 20 in the state. And so the pressures were already there to succeed. And I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't, couldn't do it. And that's why I barely graduated high school because I barely survived high school. Um, you know, just surviving. a side note. Sorry, I just have to say this, Greg, in case it gives anybody hope. My niece, who is 13 and is black, has announced she will never date anyone who's not Asian and she will only marry an Asian man. So I don't know if we can all look at that as progress. You know, I, I think the bigger thing for me is, first off, like, you learn saying that to someone somewhere, right? Oh, I don't like Asian people. You, know, you learn that. That's a learned behavior. You know, my kids are mixed race. They're Jewish and Asian. And 
you know, there are, there are many people that won't look like them. There are many people that do look like them. But the reality is, is that you will never hear from me and my wife telling our kids like, you know, you, you can't be with them because they don't look like you. Like you, you love who you love. You, you do you. Right. But I do think, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, there's, that's certainly progress. I also think too, just generally speaking, um, generally speaking, I would love for us to be, to be in a place in which that's not the first thing that you think about when right. you get asked the homecoming. Right. Like you tell yeah. me, tell me I have bad breath or something. Like tell me, right. tell me I don't right. dress. Tell me you well. can't dance. Right. Tell me I can't dance. Right. right. Like to tell me right. to tell me that like that's the first thing that you tell me. Right. Like, like let me down easy. Yeah. <laughs> have some tact here. Have some tact. Greg, you were gonna say yeah. something. No, I, I think this is such a interesting area we're exploring because it uh it's the minority tax you know it's the it's all of the other stuff that you have to navigate um just to compete feel accepted a sense of belonging and i think all these things that eric is is describing uh you know it's oftentimes referred to as that tax and you know it's the extra burden that you carry and not only do you i don't know if you felt this eric but you know similar uh, to your experience, mine was 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 uh, very much the same. Um, but the other side of that coin is sometimes you don't even feel accepted in your own community because you're yes. you're trying to navigate um, the majority world and you're trying to do everything you can. And as a young child, you don't have that. You don't have the tools yet to navigate that. You don't have the tools to say just be yourself and just do you and just because you're trying to deal with all of your your peer group and and just fit in and you're not yet equipped with the the, the sense of self-esteem and self-awareness and self-worth to say you know what I am who I am now there are some kids who are there are some kids who early on to sort of adapt that um, that coping mechanism and they're just going to be who they are and they're able to push through but most kids aren't equipped and so you're doing that and you overcompensate and so I used to come back to my neighborhood and the kids in my neighborhood used to like, I went to a Catholic school. And so we used to have to wear these ties and I'd come home with my little clip on and like the kids in my neighborhood would like snatch my clip on off and I'd have to fight. So I was fighting at school. And when I got home, because when I got home, the kids like, Oh, you trying to be white and, or you think you cute or you think you smarter than us. And you think you, and so you're sort of hot too much the, and never enough. And you don't know who you are. You don't know who you are, or who you should try to be. And it's a really challenging thing. And um, the other thing that I think, um, Eric, that you touched on, and I would, I think we should explore a little bit is, is it also causes friction between minority groups, mm-hmm. right? Because it's then it's like, who is accepted? Who's not accepted? Well, just don't be like them. Yeah. Right. And then you might be actually be able to fit in, or we might accept you as long as you're not like them. And it causes divisions between groups. And so I think this is such a powerful thing that you're sharing, um, Eric, that, you know, faith that is worthy of exploration as well. Eric, I, uh, my, my kids go to schools where, um, that are, my kids go to two separate schools. Both of their schools, uh, are more than 50% Asian American kids. And, um, a couple of years ago, my son came home with a book about, um, a baseball game being started in a Japanese internment camp. The game that saved us. Yeah. Yes. Great book. The game great that book. saved us. Yeah, he great book. also came home and with tears in his eyes, was bursting to tell me 
Mom, have you ever heard about Angel Island, I think? Huh? Yeah. Where, where, uh, where there was a prison for Chinese immigrants who were mm-hmm. just, just trying to come over to America. Yeah, and then, in, in, and the, then, in the 1800s. Yeah. Yeah. Indefinitely yeah. imprisoned. And, and his class was learning about the poetry they left on the wall. Mm-hmm. And I thought, thank God, my kid, no matter what color my kid is, thank God he's learning this history of America now. Because I didn't learn about yeah. Japanese internment camps until I was going to grad school. And my Japanese American friend said, oh, you don't know about, I mean, no shame. She was like, you don't know right. about this? My grandparents were in them. Mm-hmm. So, so I hope, you're not that old, but I hope that your <laughs> experience is uh, of not seeing yourself and, and not seeing the stories of, Asian Americans um, as, as part of a curriculum in school. I hope that is going extinct. You know, I, I hope so too. And I, you know, I, I think, you know, there's only so much I could hope. Um, and that is why I joined uh, the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American center um, as the, as one of the board directors, um, because our hope is that if you look at the national mall, and you think about the museums that are on the National Mall celebrating the rich history of the United States, you certainly have um, the the National Museum of African American History and Culture, which is incredible if you haven't gone yet. Um, but it, it details the rich history that may not be told in history books. Uh, I think that's going to change now because, it, again, it's on the National Mall. So that you, you kind of force feed that into K through 12. Um, the American Latino, the, the, the Natural History Museum of the American Latino, um, the natural, uh, the, the National Women's History Museum, um, and the natural, uh, the National History Museum of the Indigenous People of, of America. Like you, you, if you, when you have those alongside, again, and also alongside the Holocaust Museum, right? And so I think the more that you have and celebrate the rich history, good and bad, because again, no history is really clean of, uh, of a people, <clears throat> especially in the United States, you gain something called perspective and perspective breeds empathy. And so I do think that, you know, the curriculum is going to change. And I think it's going to change with the work that we're doing at the Smithsonian, because we will have a, we will have a, a place on the national mall to be celebrated. Um, but also that will help us get into curriculum for K through 12. Um, and that's the ultimate end goal for me is that hope wasn't enough. Hope is not a strategy to me. Um, action, you know, to me, especially in this time of my life, um, was more important to me and succeed or fail. At least I tried because again, like to me, hope is not a strategy. Greg, it's, we're pretty lucky that not only are we talking to Eric today, but Eric, Greg and I have talked with Jorge Zamanillo, who is... Yeah, yeah, well, you you know who he is, but I'll remind folks that he he is is leading the creation of the uh, Hispanic Museum of the Smithsonian. So it's yes. I mean it's and, no coincidence. And, and right? You got two of us. Yeah, both, storytellers. Both not approved by the Smithsonian to be talking about it, but here we are. I love it. <laughs> but here we are. I'm sorry, <laughs> Smithsonian. <laughs> well, it, we it's public enough that. Uh, uh, the U.S. Bank has contributed a million dollars to yes. that museum, and so we would look forward to supporting um, the Asian Museum too. Whenever you know when that effort really gets underway, I think that, I think those things are important, and they're important for 
corporations and business to understand their role in it. You know, it's things like, you know, obviously our partnership with you, Eric, and Meta Prosper, and which is all about advancing the the Asian Pacific Islander um, uh, community. Um, you know, it, it's it's a it's an important time for companies to continue to lean forward and lean in, um, not only because it's the right thing to do, but what we're talking about in all of this, it's actually good business too. It's great business. It's actually good business. It's like great. It, it, the reason business. representation matters is clearly it's the right thing morally. It's the right social thing to do. But the reason it's the right thing to do is because it's more profitable. Like, I mean, I mean, like, let's, I mean, let's just look at the numbers, right? Like, listen, most CEOs who don't look like me and you probably went to business school. In business school, they probably, outside of partying and drinking, um, they probably had to go to an economics class, right? And in that economics right. class, they probably said, hey, if you're running a business, look at, might be a good thing to look at the census report. And if you look at the census report, the two fastest growing populations in the United States are Asian Americans, half of that fueled by immigration, and the African American population. Combined, you're looking at trillions and trillions of dollars in total addressable market. Now, if you are going to deprioritize DEI, and if you are going to deprioritize two of those populations, guess what? New York Times estimates before 2042 those two populations will be the majority in the United States. That means they are your consumer today. And so yeah. if you're not building equity with those consumers today, your business will cease to exist. That's yeah. just the truth. That's it, just the it, truth. It, it, it's to your point, it's simple economics. And I think, um, you know, all of, all, all of this is a wake up call to business to really understand because the, the real business case, and Faith has heard me say this a number of times, the real business case today Preach. around DEI, church, we're going we gonna to go to church. We're going to go to church today. The real business case today about DEI is all about inclusive growth and innovation. Like that is the business case. Like it, it's, it's inclusion in terms of looking at the marketplace in the broadest possible perspective and doing things at scale. That's what inclusive growth is. It's, it's, it. it's, it's approaching the marketplace at scale and who doesn't want growth and scale? It's innovation yeah. in the sense that you're, you're looking at your products and services and trying to serve the broadest possible market. And if you start with insights from the Hispanic, Asian American, African American, and other, if you start with those insights at the very beginning, as you're developing and designing your products and services, you're actually designing for everybody. You're actually including everybody um, into the, into the product design. And so I, Absolutely. I think it's such an exciting time, um, for, for those of us who represent and deeply care about these communities to be in leadership roles, um, the responsibilities that we carry, I think it always is the extra burden, um, of shouldering your community. I don't know if you feel this, um, Eric, in the sense that when you're in these leadership positions in these companies, you recognize that you're not only representing yourself, but you're representing a whole community behind you. And so you feel an undue sense of burden that if you fail, you're actually letting um, your community down. And, and you know, you should have followed mom's advice to be an optometrist. Or what did you say? Optometrist. No, <laughs> potato, <laughs> like, potato. I should have done that. But no, seriously, like you actually do sort of understand that it's, a, it's an undue burden in that sense, but it's also fuels you because you're actually trying to serve something bigger than yourself. Yeah. Um, and that's how you, that's how you go forward. I mean, the burden is real. 
Right. The burden, I mean, the weight that you feel is, um, is not for the faint of heart. Um, because you do carry, you, you, you carry the hopes and, you know, the, um, the ambitions of the community, you know, in the actions that you do. Um, but you also carry, and we don't talk about this a lot. I think you mentioned it earlier. You also carry the criticisms. Um, majority of the people who critique and criticize my actions, um, the things that I've built, my career, the way I talk, the fact that I don't speak another language, uh, the fact that I'm not married to, you know, a, a, a full mm-hmm. Asian yeah. woman, um, are Asian. Those people are Asian and yeah. you carry that with you. And again, growing up in this town, not seeing other Asian people, this is, this is all new to me, right? This is like this Asian versus Asian thing is very new to me, but, <laughs> but that's why when you talk about failure and when you talk about you, 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 you acknowledge that if you fail, you don't just fail yourself. You, you, you fail the ambitions and the dreams of the community. Um, that's why I won't fail. Yeah. I just won't. Yeah. I just, you know, I think there's going to come a day where I can't do the things that I do. Um, and that's the day that I, I stop, but that's not, that's not today. You know what I mean? And yeah. that's why, that's why I just won't, I have a relentless drive. Um, to continue to push, but to succeed and, and to succeed for not just my community, but for all the other communities that are adjacent to us. Because to me, um, it's not enough that I lift my community. It's not enough that I lift my community in the black community. It's not enough that I love my community and Hispanic community. It's, it's, it's because I don't just represent half of my children. I represent the totality of them and the totality of their friends. And so it's it's my drive to succeed and to change the perspective of people who look like me, of people that I put on that may not look like me. And and that's why, again, you know, I just I refuse to fail. Refuse. Yeah. I want to talk about how you became so vocal about this, how you how you really found your purpose in in making this kind of um, personal mandate public. And I don't want to just make the Japanese internment camp a passing reference because this plays a part in in your journey. Your your grandfather, Kenji James Toda, was was he put in an internment camp? Was his family put in one? Yeah. So my grandfather uh was a strawberry farmer in Watsonville, California, which is you know a little bit on the outskirts of Monterey. Um and uh, during World War II, right after Pearl Harbor, um, they have that United States mandate uh, that all Japanese people um, are enemy of the state and they will be placed into an internment camp. And while his family was getting shipped off by the U.S. Army into um, into an internment camp in Arizona, post in Arizona, um, he decided on the way there that he was going to enlist in the U.S. Army. Um while the U.S. Army was taking away his farm, and the ultimate, the the U.S. Army actually ultimately gave, like you know, there's 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 that there's that, there's that saying, like oh, you gave the farm away. They literally gave the farm away um, to a family, to another family that you know, some families held it on, held on to it for when the family came back. This family took the farm, and we never saw it again. And so we lost the farm. Um, you know, my my grandfather's family ultimately went to Post in Arizona, and my grandfather enlisted 
in the U.S. Army in a all Japanese regiment, um, codenamed uh, the 442nd Regiment. Um, the motto for them was "Go for Broke," and mm. their it was all Japanese again. It was all Japanese, all Japanese American, and they are still to this day the highest decorated U.S. Army regiment um, in all of armed forces. That gives me chills. To this day, to this day, um, and many of you, many, many, people don't, many, many people don't know this too. There was, um, I forgot, you know, I, I, I forgot the name of it, but there was also, and again, during this time, there were other regiments dedicated to other minority groups too, like you know the black community and and the Jewish community, and they fought alongside them because I remember what's really interesting. Um, my wife, my wife's late uh, grandfather, I remember. The first one of the first things he asked me when he met me, he's like, "Did your grandfather fight in the 442nd?" I was like, "He did." He's like, "He did." Mm. He's like, "He's like, I fought alongside the 442nd uh, in Germany um, when you know when we were fighting when we, when we were fighting the, the Nazis." And I was like, "And he was he was Jewish, like he he's Jewish, and so he fought in the Jewish regiment." And so um, it's a very decorated history of mm-hmm. the United States that not a lot of people know about. So your to be clear, your grandfather was what third third generation American. Correct. Correct. Yeah, he was did, born. He, he, was, even, he was born in Watsonville. Yeah, he didn't even speak Japanese. No, he did not. And and his his family's farm was taken away. He 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 enlists. He's a World War II veteran. And then when when you were talking about the challenges you faced as a teenager growing up, your your grandfather was brutally attacked. When you were a teenager. Correct. Um, when I was 14, uh, my grandfather was a victim of a hate crime in San Francisco. You know, he used to go for walks all the time, you know, in the um, around Golden Gate Park. And um, that used to be like his thing. And yeah, he was uh, he was targeted in a very brutal hate crime that left him, you know, uh, in a hospital bed for a long time. Um they never found the perpetrators. Um, they just heard from some eye- eyewitnesses that there were racial slurs thrown at him. And, you know, I, I think the when I think about that, you know, the biggest thing that I think about was this guy fought for the freedom and democracy that allowed that people part. to walk <laughs> free on the streets, you that know? Part. <laughs> and like, doesn't matter. Like, uh, he looks a certain way, sure, whatever, but this, this guy fought. Uh, in what is known as the greatest generation um, and probably one of the greatest victories um, in world history, you know, to be treated like that. And I thought, uh, again, when I was 14, I thought that was, and again, middle of high school, um, I thought that, you know, that was so wrong. And I wish, I wish every day that back then I, I could have done something more. And then you did, you, 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 you really have done something more. So, so in 2020 and, and 2021, you became an incredibly vocal critic of racism and violence facing the AAPI community. Can you talk about the moment when you, when you realized you, I mean, you, you wrote something called my people are dying in silence and I'm here with a megaphone. What was your moment of realizing I have mm-hmm. this megaphone, I have to use it. You know, I, I, I think, even before that, I think uh, the United States was going through a significant cultural awakening. 
And I, I think we still are to this day. Um, you know, starting with in, in 2017, the Me Too movement in which, you know, we started to question, again, treatment of, of women in the workplace, um, you know, the pay gap, representation of women. And ultimately that opened the door, you know, for the black community to start doing the same and, and rightfully so. And you start to see a lot of voices that look like yours that maybe like me for the first 12 years, 15 years of their career, just focused on their career, right? I'm going to put together a good marketing career. I'm going to be a great business executive. You know, I'm going to do me. But then one of the things that inspired me the most was I started to see friends that came up with me that are other executives from the black community to start to really advocate for who they are on all levels. And one of the things that I saw through that, especially during that time, that's the summer of 2020, was that the xenophobia against the Asian American community and the rhetoric against the Asian American community was at the highest. And no one was really talking about it. Certainly we were talking about other things and rightfully so, but you know, one of the things that I saw was that while the black community and the female community were still very, very, very vocal, uh, the Asian American community was silent, like absolutely silent. And I think many people were scared. I think um, many people didn't know what to say. I think um, Greg, like Kyle, what you mentioned, and 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 I I fit on this too. It's you don't feel like you have the credibility to speak for an entire community. <clears throat> for me, I I grew up in an all white town. I was the only Asian, one of the only Asian people. And then my cousins are from San Francisco and they see me and they're like, look at, look, look at this white guy. Um, and so therefore I'm on this spectrum of ethnicity, right? I'm like somewhere in the middle. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not as Asian as they want me to be. And I, I'm, I'm more white than, than they don't want. Right. And so, <clears throat> um, I never felt like I had a place, you know, to, to really speak for the community because one, the community never accepted me because of where I sat. Um, and two, um, I've been really taught to just keep my nose clean, keep my head down and, and, and don't speak up. Uh, what is also not said <clears throat> um, during my grandfather's hate crime attack was that the question was asked, do we continue the, to search for the perpetrators? And my family said, no, my family said, no, like, they're like, let's wow. just, let's just leave it. Let's just leave it. Just leave it the way you know. Is it's all right? Like you know, we don't we don't want to cause a stir, right? And I think a lot wow. of that's generational trauma. If you think about it, mm. you know, my grandfather and his family were in, in, in incarceration camps with it, like with an AK forty seven, like to your face, right? Of course, you're not going to speak up. Of course, you're not going to look them in the eyes. Of course, you're not going to try to ruffle some feathers and like I'm going to press charges. No, of course you're not going to do that, right? Because all you want to do is get that gun out of your face and get on with your life and go and go into your little corner that, that you've been given. And so that's been passed on, you know, through my family, you know, even to when I became an executive, you know, some of the tips that I got was like, Eric, don't speak up. Eric, be great at math. Eric, don't, don't challenge people. Eric, when a white executive looks you in the eye, don't look at them in the eye. Those are all things that were passed down to me because of all the things that we've been through as a family throughout history. And so that's you, like a DNA inheritance, right? Correct. Was it your dad who told you not to look white executives in the eye? That was generational trauma. 
I think that is 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 something that you carry with you, right? And <sighs> you hear it quite a, like a lot of my 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 black friends tell me that that is something that they carry with them as well. Is that you know when you see when you know when you when you carry something that's so ingrained in your history, it's mm-hmm. hard for you not to escape it. It's hard for you not to hear in the back of your head, even though you know, even though you know, you you might have the potential to change the trajectory, right? And for me, Eric, I, 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 I you're giving me this really, uh, you're illuminating for me the really pernicious, really pernicious side of model minority. Right. Which is that mm-hmm. this this head down compliance, don't speak up, which which has, is it fair to say, enabled a lot of Asian American communities to succeed to a point comes from such a, a horrific and destructive place. Oh, it's a survival it, cause. You know, yeah. It is. And it's it it, it is it, in, in some of it, too, uh, Faith, I'm glad you brought up the model minority myth, because. It's success at what cost? You know, mm-hmm. it, it's 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 success in quotes and like what if, what did you have to give up in terms of who you are um, in order to achieve uh, achieve that success and, and which which breeds more trauma, <laughs> which gets passed down from generation to generation. It breeds more trauma because it does isolate you. I think too, the further you get away from the like the exact like catalytic moment of that. You 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 wonder like why you do things. You wonder why yeah. why you why you are afraid of other communities. You know why you don't trust you know mm-hmm. certain people that don't look like you. And I think that's absolutely wrong. I think it's absolutely wrong. And so to go back to your original question, Faith is you know I started to see a lot of these things happening, and I started to see my black friends start to grapple with the same type of truth, especially being an executive. And what the thing that tipped the scales for me was at the, I wouldn't say the peak, but at a surge of anti-Asian violence in New York and Oakland and San Francisco, um, there were about eight, nine days straight of attacks against the community that left a a few people, a few um, elderly people dead. And then we go into the Super Bowl and all the Super Bowl spots are very positive, you know, Joe Biden's in the administration now, hooray, you know, and like we got through the summer, you know, and um, I thought that was really wrong. I thought that was really wrong, uh, most because as an advertiser and a marketer, um, all it takes is for one, it, it's going to take consistency to defeat racism. It's going to take, it's going to take consistency, you know, to stand with minority communities. It's it's going to take consistency of, of messaging you know, to reinforce your commitment, you know, to your employee base that probably isn't just one race. And none of the brands did that. And it was very disappointing to me. <clears throat> and I get a phone call from Adweek um, asking if I wanted to write a thought piece on what's happening to the community as an Asian American executive. I said, no, pretty quickly. I was within 10 seconds. I said, no, I was like, yeah, wrong person asked. Sorry. Um, <laughs> And the reason is because I was like, I don't have a place to do this. Like, this is what, 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 what possibly could I say? What possibly could I say that could help people? Hmm. Um, and well, there, and their convincing argument to me from them was, 
Eric, um, you're actually our last call. Um, there were about eight other executives that said no to us. Wow. Eight other. And wow. Um, I know every single one of those eight, right? And I respect them. I respect them. I respect why they said no. Um, and to me, I was I felt ashamed. I felt super ashamed. And you know, those other eight executives speak other languages, you know, they're 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 further down the spectrum than I am, you know, and and I was like, you know what? Like I might have something to say. I might. And um, and that's when I put pen to paper and I, I wrote it and I sat on it um for about 48 hours. And Ad, we kept calling, like, did you like did, are you gonna do it? Did you write it? You know, we all watched this thing, man. And I was like, I was like, I wrote it. Uh, I don't know if it's any good. I don't know. I don't know if people are gonna read this, but I wrote it and I wrote what was in my head and my heart. Um and I remember sending it in uh to Adweek and and crying, crying quite a bit. I remember not sleeping. Uh, I remember my wife um asking me why I'm not sleeping, and I was just really nervous. I was really scared. Um, I was scared for a, a, a couple of different reasons. And this is kind of what <clears throat> part of the evolution of me. Um, I was scared because I didn't think I had a place to talk about the community I, I or, or lead the community or even be a leader in the community. I've always known I, I've been in a great executive, a great leader that certainly looked like other people. Um, but that was never like a kind, like I, I was never like, yes, and that's me, an Asian American leader. Let's go. It's always, yes, that's me. I'm a marketing executive and I just happen to be Asian. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, still continues to be true. But now there's this other part of me where I'm like, but the part of my identity that I was not proud of before, I am proud of now. And that was the change that I am proud mm -hmm. of now. I am proud mm -hmm. of it. And even if you don't like it, and even if you don't think I should be proud of it, or even if you don't think I have the right to be proud of it, I'm going to be proud of what I see in the mirror. And that was the change when I sent that piece in was I became proud of what I saw in the mirror and every my faults, um, where I was on the ethnicity spectrum, all that stuff. Yeah. Like I was like, that's it. Now, as an advertising and someone that's also in corporate comms, um, launching something on on any publication uh, on a Friday is is not advised. It's not yeah. advised. And Adweek was it's Shabbat, man. <laughs> they're like, and they're like, they're like, you know what? This is launching today, Friday. And I was like, I was like, guys, no one's gonna read this. It's also President's Day weekend. Right, I was like, right. no one's gonna read this. I was like, this is doomed. This is doomed forever. Um, and I was so sad. I was so sad. I was like, I poured my heart into this piece, and now no one's going to read it. And I went to sleep. And when I woke up, I look at my phone. And I'm, you know, as a brand marketing professional, you always tell your agencies and, you know, the people internally, like, oh, I'm going to make this go viral. You know, I'm going to like, watch this go, watch this, watch this start to trend, like watch this. And then, you, and then you do things and you make work and it goes viral and it, and it trends. And like, I won, I've won literal awards for doing just that. But seeing what I wrote, that represented me, that represented my truth, that represented my experience, do what I do for a living, do those types of numbers, have those numbers dance, have those numbers shut down ad week because they didn't have the server space. Um, it, it showed me hmm. that I, oh, I, 
shouldn't have waited so long. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I felt really bad about that. I felt super bad about that. And it opened the floodgates to a number of different people um, speaking up. I think a lot of people saw me go into the fire and not die. And so they spoke up too. <laughs> yeah. um, but the biggest thing that I felt was, damn, I didn't know it was, I didn't know it was going to be so easy to be proud of who I was. I just didn't know. I had no idea. And uh, my only hope is that those actions made other people proud of who they were, no matter where they are on their journey. And so the piece that I wrote, like you mentioned, my people are dying in silence. I'm here with megaphone led to a number of different actions, one of which being the foundation and launching of a completely new organization dedicated to supporting Asian American small businesses in which I'm the founder and executive GM of um, that we launched at the white house a year after I wrote that piece. And so, um, and that's meta prosper. That's meta prosper. And it changed my life. Writing that piece changed my life. I think it, uh, it opened up a, a slew of new concerns for me. Um, but it's totally worth it. I think it's totally worth it to be proud of who you are. And it's, it feels weird to say that, but, um, before I didn't think it was worth it. But demonstrating it, courage is never easy. I mean, it is, you know, I, I, it, what you demonstrated in that moment was incredible um, courage and that gave others um, the license and the, the space to feel safe to do so, which is why it's so incredibly powerful um, and why it's so important that companies like U.S. Bank and others are supporters of MetaProsper and, and helping to provide um, resources to these small businesses and entrepreneurs who previously may have been hesitant or may have not known, um, you know, what are the steps to launch my business and what does success look like? And now you've empowered all of them and given them the sense of uh, courage that is necessary to be successful. So uh, you're a trailblazer, man, like that, that's, it, it, it's crazy. And I don't, I, I hope you don't beat yourself up about that because that, that, that courage that, that takes, um, a long time to get to that place in space where any of us feel safe enough to demonstrate that kind of courage. You know, I think a lot of what I, I thought about in that moment uh, with my grandfather, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I remember asking him, you know, right before he passed away, like, because I, I lived with him for a little bit after my grandmother passed to, you know, just take care of him, make, make him dinner, stuff like that. And so I got to know him really, really well. You know, he was, he was part of that generation that just doesn't talk. Right. That's just like, yeah. you know, kind of rough, kind of gruff and like very like hyper-masculine and like, you know, had like calluses on his hands. because He's a farmer. And he likes to do things himself, you know, doesn't like to ask for directions, but as he got older and as I started to take care of him more, I started to ask more questions, you know, about where he was from, um, you know, what, what was his, was his favorite things to grow on the farm, things like that. But the, the biggest question I asked him, and I was really nervous to ask him this, uh, this, this is, I asked him, you know, why would you join the U.S. Army? You know, what, what went through your mind when you went, when you joined the U.S. Army as they were giving your farm away and putting mm -hmm. your, putting your family in, in prison camps? And I remember he told me, and this is the only time he ever talked to me about it because <clears throat> he wasn't really, I don't, I don't know why, but he, he, I know why he just didn't like talking about it. Um, 
I joined it and uh, everybody else joined uh, because our hope was that it was our last chance to show that we were American. Yeah. Because you don't know what happens, right? You don't know what happens. You saw what happened with the Holocaust. You saw what happened with slavery. You saw what happened with all these different things. And if you, if history were to repeat itself, you don't know if you're going to get another chance to really prove you belong here. And so he felt putting on that uniform, fighting for the democracy and freedom that this country has afforded his family for generations, literally generations. Um, it was worth it. And his hope was that eventually someone like me or my dad or whoever would yeah. be able to exercise those freedoms. Your kids. Yeah. yeah. My kids. And so when I wrote the piece, that's what I thought about. That's if I don't write this yeah. piece, I'm not exercising the freedoms that, that this man fought for. He fought for, no doubt. Eric, at the time that you wrote that piece that in which you gave yourself a voice, but also empowered so many others to feel like they had a voice. Um, we're talking about it like it's, it's the long past, it's the past, right? But this, is, this, this just happened in the last couple of years. Um, it, it was a time where so, so much of America's focus on discrimination was specifically anti-racist discrimination against black people. Um, right. Because we all know that George Floyd was murdered at the beginning of the pandemic. And there was so much, finally, so much attention and Black Lives Matter movement. And it feels like America, a lot of times, only has enough attention to pay to one minority at a time. And mm-hmm. Greg, I, 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 with your guidance, I want to return to something that you kind of, you know, posited at the towards the beginning of this conversation, which is, which is, and I just defer to the both of you, like, what do American minorities do when they're sort of pitted against each other, either through uh, minority myths, or how much attention white America has to turn to discrimination for one minority at a time? What I, I, I don't know how often I get to hear a conversation between someone who is a black American and someone who is an Asian American about this, um, this, this kind of uh, us versus them mentality that has bubbled up uh, recurringly in our history. You know, one of the, the, the things that was really so troubling to me that it, it, it got touched on a little bit, but didn't get enough attention was how often uh, some of the violence against uh, Asian Americans was actually perpetrated by by Black Americans, and that was that was so unfortunate and so disappointing and distressful um, to me because the the issue is faith, and not solely. There's no silver bullet in any in, in any of this, but it actually is education. When you don't know your history or you've been miseducated about your 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 experience and you don't know the sacrifices that your grandfather and others have made and what they went through you do suffer this trauma and the unfortunate thing is in many cases particularly in certain urban areas um asian communities and black communities are in proximity to each other 
And so they're fighting for similar resources. They're fighting for the same sort of recognition and awareness and clawing for, for crumbs in many cases because they don't know their history and they don't know their shared history. Many people don't know the shared history between Asians and Blacks in this country. Um, but it's important we start to examine that, which is why educating our young people, not only on our history as individual ethnic communities, but the history of other ethnic communities is absolutely critical um, because you start to see how much we share, um, how much we share in common. And, you know, every one of our, um, you know, communities has so much richness that we've contributed to this country that we will get past this notion of otherism and it becomes this collectivism um, of us versus me um, versus Eric versus Jose versus it's like, Hey man, like we, like we're better together, bro. Like our history and our talents and what we contribute are complementary, and our cultures are all complementary, and they all add the beautiful, um, you know, cultural texture of America, which is this incredible quilt. And so I, that's part of it, you know, faith is so much of the, the, the incidents that Eric was referring to. And it was really heartbreaking um, to see how much of that was being perpetrated by the, not only, um, but a lot of it was being perpetrated by members of the black community. And I think it's because there's so much pain and there's so much trauma that you tend to lash out to those that are in proximity or you think are taking something away from you. When there's, when there's a scarcity, when you have a scarcity mindset and you believe the pie is only so big and you think that some group is actually taking something from you, and when you have a culture that is being fed nothing but fear and entertainment and news, what I call like has become angertainment, is only making us more angry and fearful mm -hmm. of each other, and all of that is being fed to us. Um, I think the solution is really to really get back to the fundamentals of teaching our kids and getting back to educating us and what makes us better and what makes our common experiences um, an additive to this whole American experience. I mean, I couldn't say it better myself, right? I think a lot of it's education and education breeds perspective, which breeds empathy. And I think if you, I mean, the reality is, is, you don't hear my voice without the black community. You don't see yeah. Meta Prosper without the black community. Um, our executive sponsor, our executive sponsor, and biggest investor of Meta Prosper is black. Mm. And mm. I could tell you That's this awesome. right. Mm. I could tell you this right now. The hesitancy as we were building so much of this um, wasn't from the white community. Wasn't from the black community wasn't from the Hispanic community. The hesitancy while we were building this was from the Asian community yeah. internally, you know, and like, 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 why are you doing this? Like, is it really worth it? All this stuff. Black community is like, oh, we're all in. Let's go. We're all in. Hey, like, it puts yeah. it chips. It puts it like, yeah. Well, let's go. The bets, the bets on the table, Eric. You take yeah. it through, right? Yeah, yeah. What's, what's that about? What's that about, Eric? I don't know. I think there's a lot. I, there. I, I think there's, there's a lot. lot there. There's a lot because the thing is, it, the, the thing is, and I'm not sure if it's true in this example. The one thing I can say, and not I'm, again, I'm not trying to speak for my community, but my from my perspective, I the the black community is not concerned or it has no interest in assimilation. 
ever. Like that, mm. that is not, that is not part of our success equation. Mm. It has never been because we've never been accepted. <laughs> like like we were, when you start out in the founding document as three fifths a human being, like you understand yeah. how people view you. Right. And so assimilation was not really something that was of interest. It always had to be sort of this courageous, you know, like we're just going for it because we have nothing to lose. You know, when you feel you're on the bottom, you have nothing to lose, Faith. Yeah. No, it's true. You are going to put all your chips in because what do you got to lose? Yeah. And I I think they saw. I think what what. They saw from Prosper and from me. Was maybe someone that could break the cycle, maybe someone that could break history um, and, and, and start something new. Right. And, and I think that's why some of the, the most support that we've ever, like the, like some of the most support we've ever received internally and even externally too, is from the, is from, is from the black community. Um, and I'm so grateful for that. I think the mentorship that I've received, the encouragement um, to not assimilate the encouragement um, to continue to speak my truth, the encouragement to succeed um, is all from, is all from the black community. It's like, it's, 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 it's pretty incredible. And, and, and again, like, I think my hope is that the more I can talk about that, right. The more I can talk about that, the more that I allow, allow people to understand this, the more that they realize that we are better together, that we are better in partnership. We are better in bridges and, you know, a lot of times you see uh, my Asian critics or even critics from other communities saying like, well, Eric Toad is successful because he just, he got a cheat code. Like he, he found the secret elevator mm-hmm. that Asian people mm-hmm. found for him. Right. And like, he has like, he probably has like a bunch of Asian leaders that are just paving the path for him. Like that's, you know, he's like their golden boy. Uh, no, I've never had an Asian manager ever, ever, oh. ever. Mm-hmm. Ever, 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 ever. And the voice that you hear today, the success that you've seen on my resume, the awards that I've put up, the numbers that I've driven, the million, billions of dollars that I've driven for businesses is because of the white and black and Hispanic community. Because they see more than just uh, uh, the yeah. model minority. They see more than just a preconceived notion. They see hopefully something different. And my hope is that the more I can model that um, and more selfishly, the more that my kids can see that, that that's what I'm modeling and heaven forbid they decide to do what I do. I made it a little bit easier for them. Maybe. That part. That's an abundant mindset like that. Like that's the, that's, that's the complete opposite of that scarcity mindset I talked about. And Eric, I've, I've heard you say that you're, your catchphrase is how, how can I help you be better? I wouldn't say it's my catchphrase. I would say it's more like, uh, I think it's just what set me apart in my career to be fair. You know, I, I've, I've always been, I've always had this, I guess, understanding in my head that if I could help more people, um, Mm -hmm. it'll open more doors for me. Right. and maybe in a, a Freudian slip way, uh, if I could help more people, maybe I could help myself. Mm-hmm. Maybe I could figure some stuff out for myself. 
right? Maybe it'll make me feel better about who I am. Maybe make feel, yeah. me feel better about who, myself, right? And so no matter who you are, CEO, um, an entry-level person right out of college, I will always end the conversation every single time without fail. It's good to talk to you. Um, if I could ever be helpful, just let me know. Like, just let me know. Nine times out of 10, no one picks up, but that one time opens up a ton of doors. You know, I've, uh, I've never applied for any job I've ever had in my entire career. I've always been recruited. And that recruitment is always because, and I, I believe this, it's because I've been helpful to the people who recruited me. Mm-hmm. Never once have I applied for a job. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the first job. But everything, I, everything after Just that. after that. Everything after that. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I, you know, from, from Facebook to Nike, Nike to Snapchat, Snapchat to Airbnb, Airbnb to Gap, Gap back to Facebook. Recruited. And because every single person that has recruited me, I've facilitated and built a relationship and equity into that relationship where if I could be helpful, they yeah. would let me know. That's the secret. The secret is literally just being helpful, right? It's just having that mm-hmm. mindset of like, how can I help more people um, mm-hmm. to hopefully make their lives a little bit easier? Is, is being in service to something bigger than yourself. And that, that draws people to you. And that's what that, that brings incredible value to not only individuals, but to organizations. That's what, that's what makes organizations successful is when you have people who understand what the, the first lesson you learn as a leader is that it's no longer about you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's yeah. actually about the team. It's actually like, it's no longer about you. <laughs> Like it's about everybody else around you and how you help them perform at their best, how you bring value to others totally. around you. How do you move people and resources around ideas um, like that? To me, if I ever have the opportunity to teach a, you know, at a university, like that's the first thing I learned in leadership. It's like, it's not about you anymore. It's about everything but you. It's extraordinary, right? I think it's extraordinary when you think about leadership styles. You know, one of the biggest criticisms that I get is I'm too flashy. I'm too loud. Mm. You know, Mm. I'm too self-promotional. From whom do you get those criticisms? Oh, I could throw a rock and I'll hit someone. (laughs) Um, But here's the thing. But here's the thing. And like, I get those criticisms, right? And I understand it. Because one, they're probably not used to seeing someone like me do those things. Um, (laughs) Two, I mean, that's probably the biggest one, to be fair. Uh, They're like, like, whoa, this, look at this Asian guy. Yeah. They were rooting for you to to be successful. Being proud about (laughs) what he's built in a career, you know? Um, They're rooting for you to be successful until it happens. Exactly. And, (laughs) and, you know, I think you've been told to be invisible for so damn long that anything past invisible is self-promotional. And it's not mm-hmm. self-promotional. You're being a self-advocate for yourself. Yeah. And here's the reality too. If you don't, here's the thing too. I will never tell, I have a young daughter, right? She's four years old. I will never tell my daughter, don't be proud of who you are. Don't be proud of right. the things you did. You should feel proud first before yeah. anybody else is proud, right? And if people don't like that, forget them, right? 
And does it suck? You know, when, when, when people say those things about me, absolutely. But the, but the thing about it is, is that if I could give and build and elbow more space to make that normalized mm-hmm. for other people that look like me, mm-hmm. especially females that look like me, because they yeah. are disproportionately underrepresented, disproportionately affected, you know, they make eight, they make 60 cents to every dollar yes. of, of, of white executive, 60 cents, that's 40 yes. cents difference. That's humongous. And if I could elbow out and normalize being an advocate for yourself, so hopefully they feel more comfortable doing it, I'll take all the hits then. Send them yeah. my way. Yeah. Send me all your anger in my DMs <laughs> if it allows those people <laughs> to be proud of themselves. Send them my way. I'll take it. Eric, I'm going to quote my husband here. The loudest booze come from the cheapest seats. Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? And it, and it, it, it takes a certain type of person to be on the court. It takes a certain type of person. It takes a certain type of person. It's very easy to have opinions. It's very easy, Mm -hmm. you know, to, to point out flaws. It's very hard, very, very hard. You know, um, and I say this because I feel like I have, you know, to go into the fire. Very hard. Not it. It's not for the faint of heart. That's for damn sure. Right. right. Doing the work is hard. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard work. And it's, you know, I, this is another first that I'm talking about this. You know, I struggle with, uh, I'm working on it. I've never had a panic attack in my entire life until I wrote that piece. Mm. And oh. since I wrote that mm. piece, I've had five different panic attacks, five different panic attacks. Um, uh, I've struggled with anxiety since then. And I'm doing work on that. I'm doing work on that. Mm-hmm. A lot of that, a lot of the catalyst of that is, you know, um, me not being able to please everybody, me not being able to hit a hundred percent, me not being, especially with my community, right? In my yeah. head, I'm like, of course I'm going to hit a hundred percent. Like I'm doing good stuff yeah. for the community. They're no. going to love me. They're going to yeah. love me. Yeah. They're going to love me. Right. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Maybe like 60%. All right. Um, but that, triggers a lot of things. Um, and the panic attacks that I face, you know, I, I've, I've put a lot of good people around me, you know, I have a great therapist, you know, they help me work through it because I think in this evolution of, of where I'm going in, in my life and in my career, it's only going to get more intense, but I also need to have just as much as I'm preaching empathy and perspective, you know, for other communities, I need to have empathy and perspective, you know, for myself. Yeah. And that is a very tough thing. Like a lot of people don't understand that. Like when you step onto that court and you're trying to do the good work and you hear everything, you hear, I hear everything. I see everything. Right. And if I open my DMS right now, it's nasty. It's real nasty stuff. Mm -hmm. And that affects you. That affects you deeply. And it could ruin a day very quickly. And that's kind of, that's what I want people to understand is that, yeah, I, I I understand why you might not ride with me. I get it, yeah. right? But you have to understand this is not for me. I promise you, it's not for me. I promise you, it's, it's honestly for my kids. Um, it's for something greater. It's for something greater. And most times, when people have those opinions or concerns about me, they've never even spoken to me. They don't even know who I am. No, they don't know you. That's information about them and not you. I want to, I really want to thank you for sharing that something 
Greg and I have talked about multiple times in the past is how rare and essential vulnerability is to leadership. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and you're embodying that. Yeah. And, and we talked about it as grace and it's not only giving grace to others, um, which is something we, we certainly don't do enough of in general, but giving grace to ourselves, like giving grace to ourselves to, to not have to always be right. You know, it, it's, it's funny, Eric, cause I talk about this a lot and it's, you know, as leaders and somebody uh, like yourself, who is so prominent in that way, we're so hardwired to be the, the, the teacher and to show up with the answers that we don't give ourselves enough grace to say, you know what? I don't know. I don't have the answer. I don't figure it out. And I'm, and I'm not even concerned with, um, you know, trying to please people and have those answers or always to show up as this huge brand and this superhuman, as long as my kids and my wife and my family loves me and they, they think I'm great. Like that's a hard thing to do. It's easier said than done. Um, especially when you've had that kind of success and you feel this, this undue pressure to always meet that level of performance, to always meet that level of acceptance. And, you know, I, and I'm speaking for myself and it's, it's hard to let go of that and say, I don't always need to have it, um, have my cup filled that way. It's enough to be in the arena. And sometimes I'm a hit and sometimes I'm a miss. Um, and I'm probably going to miss a lot, you know, but that's okay. <laughs> and, and, and this part of your strength and purpose is to have people witness you trying. That's it. They're that witnessing part. you yeah. trying, whether, whether you fail or win. I, I, Eric, I don't know if this will resonate with you. I heard it a couple of weeks ago. I will, uh, it, it soaked into my body and I was like, yes. Um, uh, I heard someone of note quoting Billie Jean King who said, pressure is privilege. Yeah. A and it reminded me that when I choose to, I keep, that I have a choice to put myself in these pressure filled situations, which of course is what you're doing on a, on a huge stage. No, again, like I feel really, I feel very honored, you know, to be able to, you know, speak my truth and have the platform that I do and, you know, use it to hopefully do more good. Um, and you're right. I, I, I think that to, to hit a hundred percent is, is, is just massively unrealistic. And I do think, you know, I had to, I'm still working through that. It's a work in progress. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, for me, it's, it's just understanding that I'm just trying, right. I just trying. Yeah. I continue to try. I'm not going to give up, especially, you know, to be fair, a lot of people are giving up, you know, yeah. a lot of people are, you know, moved on to the next thing. And I think for me, the, the, the fight that I have in me has broadened out now to just hopefully making business more diverse, hopefully mm -hmm. making perspectives more diverse, hopefully uh, generating more empathy. But I think the bigger thing for me is just allowing for different variations of people who look like me to be successful versus mm -hmm. you just have to be one type of person that looks like me. And that person is typically quiet. I personally, that, that person doesn't speak up and that person doesn't shake, you know, ruffle feathers. You know, I, 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 I always talk about this and I was talking about this to, um, 
to an internship group the other day is that they're from multiple different walks of life. And they're like, well, Eric, like what's your biggest hit, uh, you know, for, for us as we embark on, on our internship journey. And I was like, well, you want like the, the executive response or do you yeah, want, right. like, really, you want like the real the personal. Talk, yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and they're like, they're like, what does that mean? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then like one per, you know, one, one brave woman from Harvard, she was, you know, she was like, I want the real talk. Um, and she was from the black community. And I told her straight up, I was like, and I told all of them, I was like, you know, all of you look like variations of me, right? You're, you're all shades of Brown and you're going into the marketing industry. Um, I'm going to give you the real talk that it's not going to be easy. It's not easy. I wish I could tell you. It's like, it's easy, but everyone's going to do it. But it's not going to be easy for not the reasons that you expect. It's not going to be easy because you're going to find yourself in rooms where you're the only person with a diverse perspective. It's not going to be easy because you're going to see that you are making 70, 80 cents to the dollar, you know, to a, to a, to a white executive. It's not going to be easy because you're going to see work that represents your community that you're not going to like. And you have the decision to challenge that. It's not going to be easy for all those things. But hopefully, what is going to be easier for you, and hopefully because of the work that I'm doing, and hopefully the work that my that my colleagues are doing, is they always say that you can't be what you can't see. Mm-hmm. And my hope is what's easier for you is for you to see what you can be. That's my hope, yeah. right? Every, yeah. All those other things, I can't, I right. can't protect you <laughs> from that, right? What's going to happen is going to happen. And you have some choices to make when that does happen. But what I can hopefully promise you is because of our fight because of our resolve but because it's not just yeah. this fine-tuned stop asian hate thing but instead like a, a larger drive for the rest of my life is i need to be what you can see so that you can be it too i, I love it and what i what i really love about that is because it doesn't let individuals off the hook from having some accountable some accountability for our own success and failure. You know, so often when, you know, many of us don't achieve what I think we maybe anticipated coming out of, you know, uh, big schools and landing in these companies and when things don't necessarily work out, which is why you're your you're counsel on, this is going to be hard. It's probably going to be harder than you think it's going to be. And it, actually, it's not going to play out the way that you did. In, like the way you have it mapped out in your head, I guarantee you it's not going to play out that way. Exactly. It's just not. It's not like it, it, it's not to say that you won't reach your destination, but it's not going to play out the way that you've got it planned. So just understand that right off the bat. And there are systems that need to be changed and you might have a bad manager. And there are a lot of factors that will determine your success or failure here. But the most important one is you. The most important one is your ability to fight, to navigate, to perform. Like nothing is more important than performance. So regardless of all these other things that happen to you, you've got to have performance. And the advice I always give um, people, Eric, and I hope you agree with this one, is I, I always tell people there is nothing more performance, as I said, than uh, nothing more important than performance. But the second thing after that, you have to have sponsors. I'm not talking about mentorship. I'm talking about sponsors because everything about your career and your career trajectory, everything about your career is going to be discussed in rooms that you're not in. Exactly. That's 100% true. And so you better have somebody in that room who is advocating for you, who knows your skills, your capabilities, 
who's willing to to advocate to put their own personal equity on on the line for you. And I think that's the stuff that young people don't fully understand. Like I hear I, I hear sometimes young people will come into the workplace and say, I don't want to tell people all my business and I don't know why they want like people don't they actually don't really care what you did over the weekend. <laughs> like they ask you that because they just want to know a little bit about you so they can trust you. Because it's yeah. all based on trust. They don't it's really care. relationships. Yeah, yeah. They don't really care what you did yeah. on your vacation. They only ask to see how vulnerable you're willing to be, how much about yourself, because they are seeking to trust you. And I think it's so important when we talk to young people to give them, like you said, like give them the real, like this is going to be hard and it's not going to be what you thought it is. So make sure that you're you're sort of sharing and building these relationships and in, in, in grounded in trust. You know, again, like the, you don't hear this voice, you know, this voice is not the product of the Asian community. <laughs> right. it's, not, it's not the product of that. It's the product of, again, you know, a, a handful of white executives that were just like, that's our guy. Like that's yeah. our guy for the business, <laughs> right. for the business. not yes. that's our Asian guy, but like, right. that's our guy for the business. Like he right. is a business leader. Right. And right. this is also, this is like, they have said my names in rooms that I've never been in. You know, the yes. black community have said my names in rooms that I've never been in. Right. And yes. the black community doesn't see me as like, that's our Asian guy. They're like, no, no, no that's our guy. Right. 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 And right. you're right. The foundation of that is excellent. It's, it has to be excellence. Um, yeah. It has to be excellence. Like you can believe all different things and you can advocate all you want, but what has made my voice resonate and I think give me a platform is because I've, I've had an excellent career and yeah. I've had, you know, a very successful and award-winning career that the marketing industry and the advertising industry has respected. And so I, I, I do think it's not just, it's not one or the other, right? You can be both for sure. But you have to, you, for one to be successful, you have to be successful. Yeah. Eric, you are turning your excellence into, you're enabling other, your, your community to, to succeed with MetaProsper. Um, I, af, after listening to the two of you talk, I want to sign up for the Greg and Eric three-day empowerment retreat, but I'm, I'm going to it. ask a very, let's Good do idea, it. Actually. Let's, yeah, I'm in. Um, I want to just get to a very rudimentary question, which is, which is how does MetaProsper work? What are your goals and what are you doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, MetaProsper is, well, let me define it this way, right? Every, most companies have um, an ERG for diverse, you know, communities, right? And those are more- ERG HR, means? Uh, yeah, an, an employee resource group. Thank so you. you have one for, you know, for Asians, you have one for, for the Black community, um, for the Latino community, et cetera. And, and it's more for your internal employee base to find support, to find like-minded folks, et cetera. Um, very internal focused. You know, one of the things that I saw three years ago is that um, coming from that soul of how do we support, you know, people who look like this, you know, one of the things that I, I was thinking about is um, how much of our content to onboard people in small businesses is in languages that people like me speak. And I did an audit and it was almost zero. 
And, and I was like, okay, great. That's an easy one. Great. Let's do that. Let's do that. Right. Um, let's translate content to onboard people onto the business. And maybe by doing that, we'll build equity with them. Maybe we'll have some you know stronger revenue potential. Maybe we'll build an economic engine and boom, just like that, it happened. It was like one little move like that to translate content into 20 different languages, you know, that represent a multitude of Americans um, generated economic opportunity for the company and for the community. And I thought to myself, what if we did this on a long-term basis? What if we did this every single day for every single month? And that became MetaProsper. MetaProsper is the official external support program uh, for Asian American small businesses, creators, and nonprofit. And really what we're looking to do is not just provide them with good training, not just provide them with opportunities like U.S. Bank's sponsorship of the 626 Night Market, where we brought together a ton of different you know, mom and pop shops, you know, training for financial literacy, you know, all of that stuff. It's, it's how do we partner with our biggest mm-hmm. brands and clients mm-hmm. so that they can speak with the, probably one of the, you know, one of the biggest and fastest, you know, not probably, it is the biggest and fastest growing community in the United States to build equity. And how do we set better precedent to do that with the black community, with the Hispanic community? And, you know, we have a sister program called Meta Elevate that does just that for the black and Hispanic community. And so for us, um, for us, it's how do we continue to show that representation isn't just a good thing to do, but it's a business imperative. It's a business imperative. And, you know, the reality is the reason why I am so, I have such conviction for this is because I'm a business person. I've been one. Greg Cunningham is nodding so I'm, hard. I'm to, yeah. I'm a business <laughs> I'm about to snap person. my neck. I I'm can hear so you nod, I'm Greg. I'm a business person, right? I'm a business person. And there's something to be said about doing the right thing. There's something to be said about doing what's good. But whether or not you believe in what's good and what's right, you can never, ever, ever, ever deny revenue and business results. My numbers don't lie. Elevate's numbers don't lie. And so whether you believe in what's happening to our communities, whether, you, whether you're still grappling with it, or whether you're on the, the journey to understanding and having more empathy for people who don't look like you, you cannot deny dollar in, $2 in. You cannot deny $2 become $5. You cannot deny that. And so that's why all these programs that we built have to be rooted in business. Because if we could change if we can change the mindset of supporting diverse communities from this feels like a good thing to do versus no, 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 our business will cease to exist unless we do this because majority of American businesses grapple with that today. Just as they grapple with globalization, most American businesses right now, they're like, Whoa, this is like the supply chains all over the place. Right. Fantastic. That's exactly what was always going to happen. Right. Evolution is always going to happen. You cannot stop. You cannot stop the evolution of the American people. And Mm -hmm. unless you understand what the American people looks like tomorrow, your business will cease to exist. That I promise you. Greg is. I love when Greg (laughs) agrees so hard it makes him laugh. Yeah. No. I. Bro, you just you. you, uh, 
there's so much I could say. I mean, Eric, man, thank you for for all of that because it is such a um, it is such a poignant thing and so aligned, which is why U.S. Bank is so excited to be a part of Meta Prosper. By the way, because we do understand that um, these businesses that Eric talked about, um, how prominent the issues and the gaps are in terms of getting the appropriate tools resources, information, and capital to these small businesses. Um, and Eric, we've spent a good part of this season on our podcast talking about how language is access. And you use the word um, translating and how you're translating content mm. for in over 20 languages. And, you know, we've got this little film out there, uh, Eric, that I'm going a, I'm to a put a plug in because, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, a closet marketer too. So I got to do a little promo for our film. It's called Translators, and it's uh, folks who are listening can go watch it at translatorsfilm.com. It's a short little fo- uh, film, 20-minute documentary about these families who translate everyday life for their family. And, uh, oh, by the way, uh, we actually won Best uh, Short Film at Tribeca X this year with the film. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's a topic that is really top of mind for us because we know that language actually is access. And the more that we can remove barriers for individuals, families, small businesses, we can actually help them fulfill their full potential. And the reason it's so important with small businesses and the folks that you're working with, and the reason we are so proud and and happy to be excited to be a part of Meta Prosper is because when these businesses succeed, all of us succeed. Wealth disparities go away. Communities are able to become more vibrant. There is no separation between um, racial justice and economic justice. They're inseparable. They're inseparable twins. You can't have one without the other. And so if we can help these small businesses grow and scale and create jobs and create vibrancy, we start to see improvement in all other dimensions of our society. And so I I, I could not be more supportive of what you said. I cannot be more supportive of the work that you're doing. And, you know, on behalf of everybody at the bank, man, just seriously, thank you for all that you're doing. And thanks for your partnership with us. No, I, I, I appreciate you all. I appreciate Della Ang. Obviously Della is a, is a huge advocate yes. for, um, you know, that's one of the biggest surprises to us, you know, as we were building Meta Prosper. Um, again, like Prosper is, was something that was born out, out of an idea. You know, we, we got that out, you know, we, we, we pulled it out the mud you know, to, you know, you know, to to get, to get it launched. And I think one of the most beautiful things, I wouldn't even say surprising, the most beautiful things is the amount of fortune 500 businesses, um, successful, successful financial institutions like us bank that have reached out and said, we love this. Like let's partner. Like there's something here. Right. You know? And, And I think it shows externally that, there's still a drive that there's still potential that there's still opportunity, you know, to, to continue to one broaden the perspective, broaden the empathy, um, but also just build better business, you know, yeah. uh, overall and set better precedent. I think too, it shows internal validation of just like, wait a second, us bank wants to partner with you. Like, like this is for real. Like I, to be fair, when us, when, when you partnered with us, you know, I have this Apple ticker for the, for the meta stock, for the Meta stock ticker, right? Mm-hmm. That U.S. Bank announces partnership with Meta Prosper showed up on the ticker. Wow! You know how real that is? Wow, that's real. You know how real this came from an idea of just translating yeah, yeah, content. Yeah. 
You know? yeah. <laughs> that's real stuff. That's real, yeah. real stuff that like I've never seen. I was like, oh my, you know, and I have, I have friends that work that's in financial crazy. institutions texting me about that. They're like, I just saw this, man. Is this the thing that you started? And I was like, yeah, that's crazy. Uh, yeah, I think so. You know, so, yeah, I think I, so. <laughs> again, it's, it's beautiful because it shows we're not alone. And I think that's one of the greatest things in the human existence to find is the feeling of not being alone. And whether it's in business, whether it's in your personal life, finding your tribes and finding the people who support the vision is uh, something that keeps the fire going, you know? So I, I, I appreciate us bank and Della and, and, and all of you for you know, being such great partners of us. Eric, you do not need to ask us if you can be helpful today. You, you have been, I, I thank you. You've been so inspiring, so real, so generous of spirit. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough for this conversation. I mean, I, I appreciate you two inviting me and, and having this conversation again, like it's uh we're in a really interesting time right now where the, mm-hmm. the conversation's mm-hmm. naturally evolving. I think people are, are hitting, um, you know, uh, a plateau a little bit of, of, of equity and diversity, but, you know, it's up to people like us to continue that conversation because it's going to affect way more than us. And that's why, again, I think that's why the work of Prosper and the work of U S bank together, you know, focused on business, focused on the bottom line, I think is so important because we show that it's not a good thing. It's a strategy. It's a legit business strategy. The legacy of your grandfather and his regiment, because you are, you are for sure going for broke. So don't stop. Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you. Oh my gosh. We told you it'd be an hour. This has to be a two-parter. We can't edit this. (laughs) (laughs) Great. You got to do part one and two. Eric, thank you so much. And Greg, Greg, thank you so much. Thanks for giving us so much time, Eric. Of course. That was a great conversation. I mean, Eric, seriously, thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Real Good. If you like what you heard, subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We'll see you soon.